Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial, a museum and research center dedicated to preserving and presenting the history of General Douglas MacArthur, which includes the story of World War I and that of the millions of men and women who served in that war. Today we are with Peggy Diller, Director of Library and Archives at the Woodrow Wilson Presidential Library in Stanton, Virginia, and today we're going to be talking about Woodrow Wilson during World War I. This is the second of a three-part series on Woodrow Wilson. The first episode covered Wilson before the war, and the next episode will actually cover his role in the piece after the war. World War I is probably one of the most important things that's happened in the last 100, 150 years. It's a war that really draws new fault lines all around the world, political, economic, social. And Woodrow Wilson is going to be one of the major players in this whole drama. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about how he ends up in this war, the war that he so desperately wanted to avoid? Wilson had just been reelected the previous November of 1916 on the slogan, he kept us out of war. And Wilson tried desperately to keep the United States out of this war. But circumstances, different things gradually drew him in. Uh, and the one thing that Wilson had been dealing with since the Lusitania was sunk in 1915 was the submarine warfare that the Germans were doing. He did not like it, and he tried very hard through diplomatic channels to get the Germans to stop. The Germans did briefly stop, um, but in the beginning of 1917, they renewed their attacks again, almost just not a frenzy, but just in full force, unrestricted submarine warfare. And Americans were losing their lives. People were really protesting against these actions. Congress was angry about it. I mean, something had to be done. But Wilson tried really hard through other means. But when the, the Germans started back up again in February of 1917, I don't think Wilson could ignore that. And they, the Germans almost expected the United States to declare war at that point. Um, another thing that happened in the beginning of 1917 was the Zimmerman telegram. And that isn't what pushed Wilson over the edge, but it didn't help either. Arthur Zimmerman sent a telegram to the ambassador in Mexico, basically telling him that if Mexico would attack the United States, Germany would provide financial assistance and also promised the return of what they still felt were their territories of Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas. The British intercepted this telegram. They had broken the German code. So they had this telegram, and they didn't quite know how what to do. Well, they knew what to do with it, but they knew if they gave it to Wilson, then the Germans would know that they had broken the code. So the British had one of their agents in Mexico steal a copy of the telegram, they changed the words a little bit so it wouldn't give away that they had broken the code, and that was sent on to Wilson. I don't think Wilson appreciated it. Um, in fact, it was doubted whether it was real or that the British were trying to pull the United States into war, but Arthur Zimmerman came out a few months later and gave a speech and said, I, I sent that. I, I did do that. But at that point, Wilson had already declared war. That coupled with the renewed submarine attacks, which more Americans were losing their lives, Wilson came to the decision in April 
to declare war. On April 2nd, 1917, he addressed Congress and asked for them to declare war. He was still hoping for some kind of, I mean, he knew we were going to have to go to war, but still wanted peace without victory. And he had given that famous speech earlier in the year uh, where we would have a negotiated settlement. All the old boundary lines would be drawn. Territory would be given back to Poland and Belgium and all of these other places that had had their territory seized, Alsace-Lorraine. He wanted a negotiated settlement, but unfortunately the United States would have to enter the war. Does it also help him enter the war because he knows that the czar has been toppled? Does it make it easier for him? Because he he says a couple times, you know, we're going to make the world safe for democracy. Mm -hmm. Could he ideologically not be an ally to the czar of Russia? I think it, it, somebody does say it's going to be hard to have a, a peace with autocracy. Uh, so I, that may have helped a little, but... It was a submarine warfare, really, that just yes. he can't ignore. Yes. And once Wilson decides to go to war, he goes to war. He had his program laid out. He starts the draft because the greatest resource the United States could give was people. So he starts the draft. He kind of draws a little from Lincoln and what Lincoln had to do to kind of not bypass Congress, but he had to retain some presidential powers. So he institutes censorship of the mails, not of the press, but the mail. So there's the Espionage Act, starts the Liberty Loan Program. He takes control of the railways. So he basically starts mobilizing industrially and through people. And he's going to end up selecting John J. Pershing uh, to be the commander of the American Expeditionary Force that's going to be sent to France to fight in this war. Can you tell us a little bit about their meeting? Yes. Pershing was selected partly because he had led the punitive expedition to Mexico. His only competition was General Leonard Wood. Wilson didn't much care for Wood because Wood had criticized Wilson's policies uh, before that. Pershing um, was successful in Mexico, was a friend, not a friend, but he had not criticized Wilson. He had political connections himself and also through his, his wife. So he was basically um, almost an obvious choice to be selected. Wilson gave him almost carte blanche to do what he needed to do. They met only once in May of 1917. Wilson basically told him he had the authority to use the troops however he needed. Only once did Wilson advise him. France was dying to get some of these reinforcements into their own units. I mean, they, they were suffering man, from the lack of manpower. So they wanted to absorb these U.S. troops. Uh, Wilson just told Pershing, you know, keep our identity. We don't want to have a loss of identity. So his only advice to Pershing was to keep the U.S. troops together under his command. But then he followed that up with, but I give you authority to use them however you see fit. And that was, that was the only communication that Wilson gave to Pershing. Anything Pershing sent back went through the Secretary of War, Newton D. Baker. Wilson pretty much just let him, gave him full authority. Is there any evidence that he had doubts that he could be the commander-in-chief? He's elected to be this domestic policy president. This war is thrust upon him. 
Are there any little notes in the archives or something like that where, you know, an aide is saying, you know, he's very stressed out by this or he's unsure of his abilities at this point in time? There's no record of him ever saying that. I think even once we entered the war, Wilson still saw himself as the means to achieve a peace. He still saw himself as, I don't know what to call him, the great peace negotiator, but he saw himself as the leader of the peace settlement. But I, I don't know that he doubted his abilities to be a commander-in-chief. I think once he decided to go to war, he embraced it. What does he hope to achieve through the war? You know, if he's embracing this, this thing, this is happening, he, he sees America as this mediator. What is his end game in all of this? His end game is to have a peace without victory, no victors, no losers, national autonomy, freedom of the seas, not self-determination, really. He never says that, but the ability of the people to determine or dictate their form of government. He felt peace should come from the people, not from governments. So he really saw the war as a means to, to try to get some kind of peace between these nations. Is this overall a popular war in the United States, or does Wilson face opposition at home? Brian broke with him in 1915. He comes back and is a full supporter of Wilson. Really? From, by the 1916 election, he's an avid campaigner for Wilson and is almost back to his side now. I don't know if that's a change in Brian or, you know, things just evolved that way. But Wilson pretty much had the support of the nation going into the war. And it stays pretty steady through the end of it. Yes, the only, I guess I should call it a thorn in his side is there is a Republican faction who fights him through everything. He constantly gets criticized by Roosevelt and Henry Cabot Lodge, and I don't know that there was anything Wilson could have done to have pleased them. At one point, uh, I guess early on in the war, sort of backtracking a teeny bit, Theodore Roosevelt comes to the White House and he asks Wilson if he can get his own little regiment or little organization together, you know, another Rough Riders too, and yes. go over to France and fight. What, how does Wilson respond to that? <laughs> Members of his cabinet who were there when Roosevelt came commented on how charming Roosevelt could be. Wilson said, yes, he is very charming. And they had their meeting, and it was cordial. Their relationship up to that point had not been at all. I mean, Roosevelt just excoriated Wilson every chance he could get. But it wasn't practical to give Roosevelt a command. For one, Wilson did not want Roosevelt in Europe basically taking over the war and becoming the leader. And he knew that Roosevelt would if he was over there. Roosevelt was also getting a little older. In fact, he winds up, I think he dies a few months after this. But Wilson leaves it to his Secretary of War to send him a letter a couple of days later that we've considered this but feel it's not appropriate or we, you know, doesn't really match with our plans. And they wanted to avoid the whole political appointments of generals. What does he know about the conditions of the warfare? 
Does he know that this is a war where this new technology is really causing some problems because it's getting so easy to kill so many people so mm -hmm. quickly that we've got stalemate, we've got generals and commanders using tactics that would have made Napoleon happy but not really suited for the war that they're in. Does Wilson have an idea that there is this kind of problem taking place on the battlefield? He is this historian, but does he have a perspective that Wow, something big is happening here. Some people aren't really adapting to it very well, but a big change has come in terms of how we fight, what war is, who the casualties are. I don't know if he is aware of that. There are telegrams sent back, dispatches from Pershing and the other generals, basically reports of action, but I don't know if he's aware of the changing warfare tactics. Now, that may be something that, that historians looked back on and were able to, to see. see. But not at yeah, the at the time, I'm not sure okay. he was aware of that. How much information does he have about the kind of day-to-day -day military actions? You know, he's given Pershing a pretty free reign, mm -hmm. um, but is he like Lincoln waiting at this you know, little telegraph office trying to get every little detail of what's happening, or is he a little bit more removed reading reports? A little more removed reading reports. Like I said, everything is coming in through Baker, his Secretary of War. He does get weekly summaries of what's happening as far as that, that covers every aspect of the war, how much money is being spent, how many troops are being sent overseas. You know, he's getting a weekly summary of events. And, but I don't think he's fully aware of what's happening. Can you lead us up to the end of the war, the armistice on November 11th, 1918? Well, the armistice is signed on November 11th, and at that point, he has already written his 14 points. Uh, he wrote those back in early 1918, I think, but he sat down with Colonel House, and they set out the, his 14 points uh, for peace, and that serves as the basis for the peace treaty. And I think this is where Wilson probably will be at his best in negotiating the peace, because this is what he's been waiting for. So before the war even ends, he's already got everything he wants to put on the table mm -hmm. in the peace process. He's got it all ready to go. Yes. Well, that's pretty incredible. Yes. And I think it also shows just how, how devoted he was and committed he was to a peace settlement, even while they, the fighting was still going on. He's thinking about peace. I think that is a perfect stopping point for this podcast. <laughs> uh, the next one we'll be talking about Wilson um, and the peace process after the war. But again, here we are in this wonderful place. We're here we are in Stanton, Virginia at the Woodrow Wilson Library. Would you like to tell everyone how they can get connected with the library? We have a website, woodrowwilson.org, that has a lot of information about how to come visit. We have a recreated World War I trench that's a fairly new exhibit, so uh, I think that would be fun to come see. What are your hours? We are open seven days a week. I think we have altered hours on Sunday. It's 12 to 5, I think, but that's on our website. Well, thanks again for sitting down and talking to us, and we'll look forward to the next one. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.